Tech Talk. Tech Talk with Jess Kelly. This is News Talk. Hello and welcome to Tech Talk. This is Jess Kelly with you here on News Talk. Coming up over the next hour, we'll enter the world of quantum computing and hear how it's bringing jobs to Ireland. Is gaming nostalgia better than the new titles? And I'll give you a chance to win a fabulous 55-inch OLED 907 Ambilight TV from Philips. As always, you can email the show techtalk at newstalk.com or you'll find me on Twitter at JessKellyNT. But first... I want to assure the committee that the tech sector will continue to grow in Ireland in 2023, albeit at a lower level than it has over the last two years. We need to continue to focus on people and talent development. Technology Ireland remains committed to working with government and all stakeholders to meet the challenges impacting us all to ensure Ireland can remain a technology powerhouse. That was Una Fitzpatrick, Director of Technology Ireland, speaking at an Oireachtas committee on Wednesday about the status of the tech sector in Ireland after the recent job losses. Um, It was a really interesting discussion. I watched all two and a half hours of it, I think it was. And we heard committee members asking some really good questions about, you know, is this a blip? Is it a correction? Is it a bigger issue? Are there contributing factors here in Ireland that we should worry about? Uh, But I thought this exchange was particularly interesting. So I want to ask, uh, do you feel, given that we have uh, labour laws in in this state, they may not be the strongest, but they do exist. They were clearly bypassed in some instances. And I want to ask, do these companies have respect for the government? Because it seems to me uh, that there is a lack of respect there with the way that the the workers have been treated. Uh, I do think, and I, I will reinforce, the empathy and the support that companies are providing to their to their people. It is not um, a scenario where people are, are not being looked after. Um, they are being looked after, I think. Um, and I think it's also safe to say that, um, you know, while it's a very tough time for people at the moment to receive this bad news, there is a lot of opportunities in the tech sector at the moment. And you can see that many of the companies are working with the employees to help them to source alternative employment and to help them to find um, alternative employment. Well, I think the bypassing the 30-day consultation period and only informing the tarnished at the, the last minute when it was already public knowledge in relation to a collective redundancy is not a good way for any company to behave in, in a global, uh, national or local context at all. And, and I don't accept that because these were global announcements that somehow they get to, uh, to, to bypass that. And I think that is one of the big issues. It's not just that jobs were cut, because although it's never nice, you know, that does happen. I think it's the way in which it was done in some instances, namely with Twitter. But I guess time will tell if you know, any consequences will come of that. But while the main focus of the world of tech has recently been those job cuts, there is some good news on the horizon, if you excuse the pun, which you'll get now, uh, with the creation of some new tech jobs. Horizon Quantum Computing, there you go, is based in Singapore and this week announced plans for a European expansion with the opening of an Irish office and at least 10 new jobs. Dr Joe Fitzsimons is the chief executive and he joins me now. Uh, Joe, it's great to talk to you. Before we talk about that Irish operation, can you just give us a a beginner's guide to quantum computing? Sure. Um, So it turns out that the notion we've had of computation since the 1940s um, that all of our laptops and computers are based upon um, 
it kind of has built into it certain notions about physics. Um, so the fact that we can store information in ones and zeros, um, that's making some kind of assumption about the way nature uh, has information in it, the way, you know, the kinds of information that can manifest in nature. Um, and it turns out that this is perfectly uh, sufficient for 19th century physics, for what we call classical physics. Um, but it doesn't capture some of the notions that show up in modern physics, in particular, the notion of states being in a superposition. Um, so instead of a bit being just zero or one, we could imagine some kind of quantum state that's a superposition of zero and one. And as you start expanding computation to take account of these extra states that can exist in physics, uh, and the extra ways you can manipulate these states in physics, you get to this richer model of computation. So it's kind of a fuller set of operations of, of kinds of data and ways of manipulating data that harness effects from quantum physics. And it turns out this gives some really dramatic speed ups for certain problems that can be very interesting for particular industries. So could you give me some of those examples of the real world benefits from quantum computing? Sure. Well, let me start out with a real-world disadvantage, which is that one of the first known applications of quantum computing, and one of the ones that really uh, drove interest in the field in the 90s, um, was the discovery of an algorithm uh, that you could run on a quantum computer for factoring numbers. So if you have some very large number and you want to determine which prime numbers you need to multiply together to get that number, um, it turns out that that's a hard task. Um, but on a quantum computer, it becomes easy. And it may sound like a very uh, esoteric problem, but it's actually right at the heart of modern cryptography. So the cryptography that secures all of your card transactions when you buy something on the internet, all of this is relying on the hardness of that problem. Uh, and in a world with quantum computers, that is no longer hard. And so we need to rethink a lot of how modern uh, cryptography works. But that's a downside. Mm -hmm. um, the upsides are when it comes to problems across a whole range of industries. So whether it be simulating chemistry, for example, where we know there are very large advantages to be had on a quantum computer. And that in turn turns into applications in terms of things like figuring out more energy efficient means of uh, doing nitrogen fixation for producing fertilizer, or maybe uh, searching small uh, small molecule candidates in drug discovery uh, for pharma, for example, or it could come down to things like um, simulating fluid flow, uh, simulating airflow over a, a turbine, for example, or an airplane wing, those kind of things. We know there's very large advantages to be had. And this could be a really stupid question, so I apologize in advance, but for those who are working in those sectors, what changes, like what does quantum computing look like and how does it change the day-to-day -day processes of those working in those sectors that you've just mentioned there? Sure. So it really, when you think about quantum computing just as a standalone technology, you have a box that's doing computation. The main metric is solving the same problem, but faster. Mm. And that, that may mean um, so if you take finance, for example, it may be taking calculations that would otherwise run overnight and running them inter-hourly, for example. So maybe you have a, a tighter envelope on your risk, uh, for example. Um, 
Other examples, though, are things that just cannot reasonably be done on computers at the moment. So one of the reasons wind tunnels still exist is because it's hard to simulate turbulent fluid flow uh, using conventional computers. So that's kind of an area where quantum computing can really change how we go about doing business. You mentioned there about banking, and I'm interested to know, will the advancement of quantum computing, will that make financial transactions and anything to do with data, I suppose, more secure? Will it help detect any type of cybersecurity threat or ransomware, for example? Will it make the identification of those threats a a bit faster? So that's a good question. And I would say there's probably not a clear answer on this. Mm. Um, Quantum computing opens up new threats in in the form of being able to compromise encryption. But there are new standards of encryption that are believed to be resistant against quantum attack. Um, but there have been a number of proof of concept projects where um, people have looked at, for example, fraud detection um, in card transactions. Um, I can't really speak to how successful those are. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I wasn't involved in them. Um, but it's certainly something that that people have started to look at. And we know, for example, that machine learning is an area where there are really enormous advantages to be had from quantum computing in terms of being able to deal with much larger data sets and being able to train substantially quicker than you can on conventional computers. How important is connectivity to quantum computing? Um, In terms of speed, for example, you know, like, you know, we're hearing a lot about uh, 5G, obviously fiber to the home and all the rest. So is this something that you need to have high latency to ensure that the technology can do its thing? Yeah, so this this is a good question. Um, One of the one of the things I tend to, you know, tell people about quantum computing that's important to understand is it's a little bit like where conventional computing was in 1948 or something like that. We're still very, very early on in the process of developing the technology. At the moment, one thing we didn't have in 1948 that we do have now is an internet. And this means that it's possible for us to connect remotely to quantum computers that may be somewhere else on the planet. Um, And this is really helpful because a lot of those systems require um, quite a lot of infrastructure that would otherwise be very difficult to have on premises. So for example, very, very, very low temperatures or very high vacuum, uh, for example. Uh, So when you look at that, it it kind of leads to cloud-based computing being a very natural um, instantiation uh, of quantum computing. Um, And it's what's showing up at the moment. You're seeing a lot of the manufacturers at the moment having their hardware remote so that users access it over the internet. So you see this, for example, with IBM and AWS, where they have systems online that you can connect through through their cloud services. Okay, I want to talk a little bit because later in the show, we're going to hear uh, from the RCSI about uh, a robot surgeon that they have. And uh, there's huge advancements, I suppose, coming down the track in terms of med tech and so on. Could quantum computing benefit the, I don't know, the detection, the diagnosis, the prognosis, the, the application, I suppose, of healthcare to individuals? So that's a really good question. And I think there's two sides to it. Um, One is that quantum computing is ultimately at its core better computing. Mm -hmm. Um, And the number of applications for that is very large. And of course, it will show up in healthcare and other places over time. 
The other side to it, though, is where things currently stand with quantum computing. Um, and we really are at an early stage for the technology. So it's not it's not a panacea in the short term. Okay. It, it's not something that is going to be affecting people's healthcare, affecting these kind of things in the near future. It, it's a much longer path. And I think we should actually be, be pretty happy that it's a longer path because for anything healthcare related, you would certainly want a long time to make sure that it's fully tested and is working correctly before you rely on it. Um, tell me a little bit about uh, Horizon Quantum. W- what is it that you uh, do? Uh, and uh, tell me a little bit about the, the roles that you're expanding to Ireland. Sure. So essentially, as we see it, there are two main uh, barriers to getting to a world where quantum computing is actually useful. The first is we need the hardware. And if we don't have the hardware, we're nowhere. But the second problem, the second barrier, is that even if we had large-scale quantum computing, uh, sorry, large-scale quantum computers today, you know, really perfect systems equivalent to a modern laptop or something like that, we still wouldn't really be able to make use of it for many for very many tasks. Um, and part of the reason for this is simply that coming up with algorithms that make use of quantum hardware is notoriously hard. So what we're trying to do is to automate that process. You know, if you think about it, if you think about someone, um, you know, working as an engineer, for example, and they're trying to simulate, um, they're trying to simulate a jet engine or something like this, um, you know, they're an expert in their domain, but they're not necessarily an expert in quantum computing. And if you bring in an expert in quantum computing to try to develop software to help them with that task, the problem you run into is that person who's an expert in quantum computing is not an expert in the domain, you know, in this uh, in this particular engineering domain. So how do you get to working software? Well, one of the things you run into is that there's some communications chain you need to uh, have close communication between the engineers and the quantum computer scientists and so on. But it makes it very, very difficult. It makes it very difficult to come up with more than a solution that just scratches the surface. So what we're trying to do is to automate the quantum expertise, to automatically construct quantum algorithms for particular tasks so that we can put our tools in the hand of domain experts, whether those be in engineering, whether they be in the energy sector, in in pharma, in, in finance, and let them develop applications on their own that harness quantum hardware. Um, So that's the first part of your question. I think the Mm -hmm. second part was about the roles in Ireland. Um, You know, in relation to that, what I would say is we've been looking to Ireland as a place to build up an engineering center. So where we will do the software development um, for our products, um, not just in Europe, but globally. Uh, Singapore is not really ideal uh, as a a place to build up um, an engineering center there's a there's a relatively small talent pool compared to when you look at Ireland, but also the EU and UK. Um, there's a there's a much deeper uh, talent pool available. So as we look to grow, not just in terms of the you know ten plus jobs that we're looking to recruit for now, but as we grow as a company and we may go to many more jobs, we want to make sure that there's a, a sustainable pool of talent there that we can draw from. 
Yeah, this goes back to something I mentioned at the top of the show, which was in relation to an Oireachtas committee that took place on Wednesday, where there were questions uh, put to the uh, Technology Ireland and the IDA about some of the job cuts that we've seen in Ireland in recent weeks and the future of the tech industry. And one thing that came up time and again was that we do have tech talent and Ireland is a good place for tech companies to base themselves. Um was there any reservation, people will hear, obviously you're based in Singapore, but you're an Irish man. So were there any reservations about selecting Ireland as the European base for this expansion? Oh, not at all. So um, what I would say is we had planned this for a while. We've been looking at it since um, since before the summer. Um, we looked at about eight different locations around the world. Um, the majority were in Europe but we also looked at North America and other locations in Asia. Um, And, you know, from our assessment, Ireland came out on top in terms of availability of talent, um, in terms of the ability for people to to move, in terms of the um, ability to hire also for science roles down the line. Um, You know, we're talking at the moment about uh, software engineering roles, but we also you know, a large part of our business is also uh, on the science side, hiring people who are experts in quantum computing. And for that, there's a really small number of people worldwide. So being able to draw from as large a pool as possible is really beneficial. Um, And of course, with Ireland being the only English speaking country in the EU now, um, there's advantages to that as well. As you say, I'm Irish, so it's much easier for me to do business in English mm-hmm. than if I have to sign documents in other languages. Yeah, it's great to see that the plans for expansion and and as you just said there in Ireland, in terms of issues such as, you know, housing, property, the things that any company has to face when they are expanding into a new uh, country. How has that process been from uh, Horizon's point of view looking at Ireland? You know, we're coming from Singapore. Singapore is a a very densely packed country. You know, you have roughly the same population as Ireland, but in a much smaller space. So although there is, of course, um, issues in housing in Ireland at the moment and and other things, um, these are issues that you see in other places as well. From our perspective, we've, you know, we've been able to have a look in terms of office space, different things like this. There seems to be... um, there seems to be a good amount of availability in terms of the positions we'd be hiring for. They're at quite a high salary point. So we would hope that people will be in a relatively good position in terms of, um, in terms of navigating, in terms of navigating those types of issues. Mm. Um, my final question is for people listening to this now who either have kids or are themselves going to be filling out a CAO form at some stage is the education there, are the courses there, to your knowledge, in Ireland to facilitate that the roles within quantum computing as this area continues to expand? So there's a variety of roles in quantum computing. Um, one of the best hires I've made, <laughs> I think, has been our director of product, Amanda Chu, um, who did not come from a quantum computing background. She had been uh, she'd been a senior program manager at Microsoft, and um, she had been working on dev tools there, and that was the ideal background for us. So she wasn't coming in as you know a number of our other employees come in as you know being right at the forefront of quantum computing mm-hmm. uh, research, but um, 
I just want to, first of all, give you, you know, this understanding that it's not just about people who are experts in quantum computing. Yeah. Ultimately, we're a software company, and that means we have roles similar to other software companies. Mm -hmm. The other thing I would say, though, is that there has certainly been movement in Ireland towards um, creating new uh, creating new educational programs in the space. So in, in Trinity College, for example, they have a master's program in quantum science and technology that's very relevant for us. Um, so that's certainly uh, certainly something that will be uh, certainly something we look to as a potential benefit down the road. Great stuff. Well, this has been one of those interviews where I just feel my brain expanding as I listen to you talk. So thank you so much for your time uh, and best of luck with the setup of that Irish operation. That was Dr. Joe Fitzsimons, the chief executive of Horizon Quantum Computing. Now, how would you like to win a fabulous 55-inch OLED TV from Philips? If you have your phone in your hand, head to YouTube and search for News Talk. You'll see an episode of my new video show, Tech Bytes, there where I review this TV and you will see instantly that it is stunning. I was so impressed. It's an Ambilight OLED 907. The key difference with this TV is that it has these little Ambilights built around three of the sides of the TV. So when you're watching something, it just creates this much more immersive experience. So say, for example, if you're watching sport and the camera's on the pitch, you will get the the green hues pumped up onto your walls, making your TV feel massive, but also just giving that extra element to your experience. It's great if you're gaming, great if you're watching movies, and as I mentioned, their sport. Uh, It also has Bowers and Wilkins audio built in, meaning the sound matches the quality of the picture. If you'd like to be in with a chance to win, simply answer this question. Which Australian TV show is being brought back from cancellation by Amazon? Is it A, Skippy, or B, neighbours. Text the word WIN along with your name and answer to 53106 at a cost of 30 cent. The competition closes on Wednesday at 5pm and the winner will be announced on next week's show. So a reminder of the question, which Australian TV show, I mentioned it last week, is being brought back from cancellation by Amazon? Is it A, Skippy or B, neighbours? Text the word WIN along with your name and answer to 53106. Very best of luck. Tech Talk with Jess Kelly. Welcome back to Tech Talk. This is Jess Kelly with you here on News Talk. Now, before the break, we were talking about quantum computing, which is a massive leap that's happening in that sphere. And I mentioned during that conversation robotic surgery, which is something that is on the rise and already exists here in this country. I recently went to the Royal College of Surgeons in Ireland around the corner from the News Talk office to see the first ever robotic assisted training programme at the college. I met with Dara O'Keefe, who's the simulation lead for postgraduate surgical education. And she told me a bit about her role but also the types of technology that trainee doctors are encountering. So my role is to train um, trainee doctors in surgery, emergency medicine, various other specialties in everything from basic surgical skills on very simple models in a lab setting all the way up to high fidelity simulation to train interpersonal skills, teamwork, looking after the critically unwell patient um, and various other things like that. I know you were a surgeon yourself. Have you seen a, a surge in the, in the uses of technology in an operating theatre over the last number of years, particularly now as you're moving into and have moved into the education space and you probably get eyes on things that are coming down the tracks? 
Yeah, there's certainly been an explosion of technology and part of our remit here is really to make sure that when new technology comes online for the surgeons in practice in the hospitals, that we give them a chance to use simulation to practice, become familiar with the new technology, to work in teams in this environment before they go in to use something new um, with patients. When it comes to those newer technologies, um, how long does it need to have been around and how much airtime, I suppose, does it have to have had before you will bring it in and introduce it to your students? So I suppose it's when it reaches that kind of critical typical point of becoming um, fairly common practice. Um, not every novel piece of equipment or new biotechnology becomes the gold standard. And so at the point, I suppose, there's no specific level of penetration of new technology that would make us do it. But once we know that this is a significant piece of technology which is here to stay, then we would recognise the need to train the future surgeons so that they'll be equipped to use it when they become fully qualified. Mm-hmm. I was just in the room behind us now uh, a few minutes ago looking at a robot to assist in certain surgeries. Can you just tell me what I saw and what it is? Yeah, so the surgical robot platforms, um, and we're very lucky to have one on loan here from um, Intuitive Surgical. It's the um, Da Vinci XI platform that we have here, but there are others on the market from other companies. Um, The principle of robotic surgery is that it's a minimally invasive surgery. So you'll have heard of keyhole surgeries where there's less open scars, less pain and recovery, small entry points to do surgery. And there's already a process called laparoscopic surgery, which is what we would kind of you know most people would know is that standard otherwise known as keyhole um, so it's minimally invasive um, but the laparoscopic surgery and the robotic surgery have quite different um, technical elements to them so laparoscopic surgery has been around for many decades now um, and is very much um, gold standard of practice for a lot of procedures um, but it involves the surgeon physically over the patient with long extended instruments that go in through into the abdomen or other places um, and have the instruments at the end of them. So the surgeon is still physically over the patient and and using the instruments. The what they actually see is through a camera port, there's a camera inside, and they're watching um, and controlling the procedure through um, a screen, a monitor beside them. So robotic surgery is also minimally invasive, except the technology is there now that the surgeon doesn't have to stand over the patient now there always will be a surgeon beside the patient in case there's any malfunction with the ports or any of the instruments but then the main surgeon will be at um, a console which is remote and generally that's in the same room but it doesn't have to be as I'm sure you've heard it could be um, theoretically and has been done at a great distance with the surgeon elsewhere You might say, well, why take that risk with all the technology? Why not continue with laparoscopic surgery, standing over the patient? And the main difference is that the dexterity you get with the robotic instruments is as close as possible to a real human hand in terms of the range of movement, the twisting, the turning, getting around corners, all of these things that you would normally um, be able to do with your hands in the patient's body, you can do um, much more effectively with the robot than with a long, rigid instrument, as you can imagine. Um, having said that you might say well why do this over just 
cutting the patient open in the traditional way and robotic surgery is particularly effective in areas where you would be working in quite a deep dark hole so that's the way to put it but you know it has a role in urology in head and neck surgery um, and down deep in the pelvis where it's actually quite difficult even with traditional methods to get really good visualization and to see everything you need to see and be able to get your hands on everything you need to get it on and do it really safely so there's a role for all three types there's the open surgery the laparoscopic and the robotic but for certain procedures robotic surgery now has been found to be you know the goal that by far um, I suppose depending on the operation but certainly as safe if not safer in many procedures. From a surgeon's point of view I, I sat at the console and I got to do a bit of a training demo uh, with, the, with the robot the first thing that struck me was the clarity of the image that appears on the console as a surgeon yourself, were you surprised when you first encountered this technology to see that that level of clarity and that different point of view was available to surgeons versus watching on the monitor uh, for a traditional lap- uh, laparoscopic surgery? Yeah, it is a slightly more immersive experience because your head is encased in the console, so it feels almost like a virtual reality experience in a way. Um, in terms of the clarity, I suppose what you're seeing here today is a demonstration in a synthetic box. Um, for any camera inside, say the abdomen of a real person, there's heat, there's moisture, you know, and sometimes you're um, finding that it's not quite as clear and perfect as it might be there. But certainly the um, level of the, the technology that has been emerging in the last few decades in terms of surgical cameras and viewing the inside of the body in various ways has been there for for quite a while. It's getting better all the time, mm-hmm. but certainly laparoscopic and even endoscopic, those kind of scope or camera procedures that a lot of people would have had, the clarity of what you see has been really excellent for, for a while, thanks to the companies that developed this, these instruments and technology. How much training time do surgeons need to spend with um, something like the Da Vinci before they use it on a human? So I suppose there's no gold standard for a set of hours for a new technology um, and there isn't, um, you know, what we say is it's surgical training is a very long process it's an eight years of training program after you become a qualified doctor so it's a long process and it's largely done in the hospitals outside of the simulation area so for something like robotics it will be the consultants and the most senior trained surgeon would be performing the operation and then the surgeons in training would be um, assisting and learning um, and doing small parts of that as their training goes on um, but then we would hope that they would in time have the facility to train outside of that on their own on simulators Um, and so each of the robots in the hospitals has a simulator facility and so they would spend a number of hours practicing uh, in the hospital setting when it's not actually hooked up to a patient but in order for them to be the chief practitioner they would spend maybe you know, after their seven or eight years of training here, they would go and do a robotic fellowship in a world-leading centre elsewhere where they're operating all day, every day, practically with very senior, experienced people. So it's a long road. There's certainly uh, not a situation where you just jump onto the robot and use it. In terms of patients and communicating to patients about robotic surgery, are are surgeons taught how to articulate what is going to happen and to reassure and, in, and get that consent from a patient uh, to have a robotic surgery. 
So we do a very extensive human factors program here. It's a mandatory part of, of trainees passed through surgical training and we spend a lot of time teaching them how to speak to patients I mean a lot of it they they would know and have practiced but we really go into um, a lot of detail about consent for procedures and how it's more of a journey of bringing the patient along with you understanding the technology because robotic surgery isn't unique there's lots of different technology based treatments that are happening to patients now um, and so we invest an awful lot of time in making sure that they listen to patients' questions, are really sure that the patient understands the difference, um, say, between some procedures that might be offered with a more traditional surgical approach versus um, robotics. And, you know, patients do have the option. It's very much their choice. They might say, look, I would prefer it done in a different way. Or we have patients now who come in and say, I want this done with the robot. And maybe they're not entirely sure what that means and what the pros and cons of both are. So consent for any procedure is really a process that's kind of building um, a trust and a rapport with the patient and just making them feel comfortable to ask any questions they have about it rather than coming in and saying here's what we're going to do we're going to use this technology and just you know sign on the dotted line so there's a huge move towards um, that process of consent being much more inclusive um, and a shared decision making for the patient. My final question is I'm sure somebody is already texting into the show now to say this is a bad thing that you know this we're, we're creating a remove between healthcare providers and patients I know you've already addressed it but just I want to reinforce this, there's no removal of care at all. This is just basically a new tool for surgeons to use to perform the work that they would be doing anyway, correct? Absolutely. And everything from meeting the surgeon and discussing what's going to happen will remain the same. You know, it's not, sometimes people think, oh, I'll just go in and a machine will be doing this. That's not the case. Um, it will still be your surgeon that you've met before and who's explained it to you and they'll meet you afterwards and they are there in the room or, you know, right beside the room and as I said people often don't realize that there's also a second surgeon right by the patient at all times um, so it's very much using a, a new tool as you said which can allow them to do certain procedures better more effectively with less complications so it doesn't remove the human it's just the human interface has got slightly more complex that was Dara O'Keefe of RCSI talking to me about the advancements in medical training and indeed the tools and techniques that are being used in operating theatres here in Ireland. I would love to know what you think. Would you be comfortable with one of those surgical robots being used on you during a procedure? You can email me techtalk at newstalk.com or you'll find me on Twitter at JessKellyNT. Win Christmas this weekend on News Talk. Yeah, Christmas is just around the corner and I'm sure you're aware it can be quite an expensive time of year. So we want to help. Are you ready? We have a €1,000 voucher for a supermarket of your choice, a €1,000 toy store voucher, a 55-inch LG 4K OLED smart TV and €500 to get your home ready with lights, garlands and all the other trimmings you could possibly want. This is the festive dream and it can be yours by entering this week's competition. Simply tell us what colour is Rudolph's nose? Is it A, red or B, blue? Text the word play and then A or B to 57557. That's 57557. Text costs 250 plus your standard message rate. You have to be 18 years or older to enter. You are playing across the Go Loud Network of stations. Full terms are on our website, newstalk.com. 
get your entry in by 10pm on Sunday night and all of that festive joy could be yours. So remember, text the word PLAY and A or B to 57557. The very best of luck. Tech Talk with Jess Kelly. Welcome back to Tech Talk. This is Jess Kelly with you here on News Talk. John Fardy is here after 6pm with Screen Time. John, what's on the agenda this week? Thank you, Jess. Well, I'm delighted to tell you that there's a brilliant new Sky Arts documentary uh, available to view now called The Ghost of Richard Harris, all about the legendary Irish actor. And this week on Screen Time, I'm talking to his son, the acclaimed actor himself, Jared Harris, all about his dad and the documentary. And uh, it is a fascinating chat, if I may say so myself. And also a fascinating documentary all about pigeon racing called Million Dollar Pigeons. I'm talking to the director of that, Gavin Fitzgerald. Thank you, Jessica. Great stuff. That is Screen Time with John Fardy coming up just after 6pm here on News Talk. Now it's time for this. Gaming on Tech Talk. Yeah, we're spoiling you this month, but even more from the world of gaming. And what's exciting for me is that we're talking about my favourite console today, the Nintendo Switch. Kira Tracy is with me now to talk about her love of Nintendo and the new Pokemon game, Scarlet and Violet. Um, Kira, before we get to the game, tell me a little bit about your what tell me about your journey with gaming. So I wouldn't say I'm like obsessive, to be honest. For me, it's very much a nostalgic thing and something that I grew up doing with my siblings so it kind of started with my brother's Game Boy and then me and my sister became like obsessed with our DS Mm -hmm. Um, we had the DSi we had DS Lite and then finally I gave in because you know over lockdown I really wanted a Nintendo Switch that was what everyone was doing and finally now that I am I just realised it's what my heart wants. Yeah. I have it. <laughs> you have to give into it. it. The Nintendo uh, DS, I had one of those. That was the one that kind of folded over yes, in on itself and exactly. it had the little stylus pen. Exactly, that always got lost. Always got lost. <laughs> I still have mine, actually. It's in my apartment and I love it. I used to play the Professor Layton games and the brain training. Did you ever go down oh, that route? They were like the little mini puzzle ones. Yes. Okay. No, I actually was more of a Nintendogs or a bit more niche, Harvest Moon. Harvest Moon, explain. So basically, it's a bit of an escapist one. Um, It's basically just like you have your own farm, Mm -hmm. you have crops, you tend your animals, you make friends, get married, have kids... It's very much an escapist game. Yeah, I think a lot of people love those games. I was talking to John Riley about the Nintendo Switch earlier this year when I got my one. And the game that I got is Animal Crossing. Yes. Have you played Animal Crossing? Yes, that was the first game I got for my Switch. and it Because it's amazing. I mm-hmm. played it on the mobile and I also had it on my DS growing up. And that's, that's brilliant because you can just literally dive into that world and... Yeah, it's amazing. You get lost in it. So for those who don't know, it's very simple and it's it's you know, it can be played by either kids or grown-ups. You go to this island. It's a deserted island when you move there. You set up your little tent to begin with. You go around and you forage for goods. So whether it's fruit or whether it's leaves, you have to complete certain missions and the longer you're there, the more built up your island becomes. And it's one of those games that is pure escapism. I can't explain why I'm addicted to it, but I'm fully addicted to it. That's it. And I love that you said it's for children, adults, because it remedies like the child in me and like is very much the adult in me too. Like Mm -hmm. it's brilliant. And like you say, you just get lost and yeah, 
it's just a dream. If you haven't, uh, if you have a Switch and you haven't played it, I would highly recommend it. And it is one of those games where you can, you know, if there's a Switch in the house and you're looking to introduce your kids to gaming, depending on the age, um, I think it's absolutely worth getting. It's very, very addictive though, so buyer beware. <laughs> um, in terms of the Switch, why did you go for the Switch Lite over the Switch? Okay, to be honest, one of the reasons is pure aesthetic. Mm-hmm. I love the colours and it is more lightweight and it... I was worried that I'd get annoyed with the clunkiness of, you know, the... Um, the nunchucks on the yeah, side, exactly. yeah. exactly. And I know I'd either get them lost or... I'm just happy. Like, I know what I wanted. I know what I needed from the Switch. Mm-hmm. And the light just kind of serves that plus. I love the yellow. Yeah. I really wanted the coral. And I'm kind of jealous of your blue one or turquoise one yeah we've brought uh, both brought our switches into studio because this is research so we're going to yes. sit here for half an hour after <laughs> the show and work. just play away um but you know i agree because i had my boyfriend's old switch and it was great and that's what i started playing uh, on and i loved it but i did find that it was that little bit more cumbersome yeah. and i have tiny little hands <laughs> so just doing that it's extra weight i suppose to hold um he now has the oled version And the screen on it is stunning. So if you're serious about your games and if you want to play things like Zelda, for example, I think the uh, Switch OLED is the way to go if you can get your hands on one because I know that they are in high demand. But I have the the Switch Lite and for the exact same reasons, I just love the aesthetics of it. But for me, it's the comfort of it and it's the ultimate portable console. I think the compromise with this, aside from it being slightly smaller, is you don't have the ability to plug it into the telly, um, which doesn't really matter for me. What about you? I love to play mine in bed, Mm -hmm. literally curled up, cup of tea, and then like it's just me. No one else needs to see what I'm doing. And I just love, I think it's more like personal and it's a lot more intimate I think when you are just having that you time to be able to just have it there like right in front of you. I asked on Instagram if people were Switch fans and what games they play and the majority of people came back saying Mario. Uh, in particularly Mario Kart. Are you a Mario person? Yeah, but I actually prefer to play mine on the TV. You know, I think oh, that's interesting. an okay. experience with friends. So like whether it's like on the Xbox, I feel like that's something I like to kind of have the wider experience with. Mm-hmm. I feel like I wouldn't want to play it as much by myself because I want to be able to have that fun. I know you can do multiplayer yes. still, but I think being able to everyone see it on one big screen for me is what I love about Mario. Yeah, I have um, some of the different Mario Karts on my Switch and I love them, but I find that those ones I get a bit, and this is pathetic about me, but I kind of get too into it. Yeah, It's not a relaxing experience. <laughs> exactly. Animal Crossing my- is like is relaxing. Yeah. Mario Kart is, I have to show everybody how good I am Absolutely. and I'm very good. Heart palpitations, the yes. lot, sweaty palms. Fantastic. <laughs> Ideal for a nice relaxing Saturday. Uh, what are the titles that you've been playing on your Switch Lite? So, uh, first start off with Animal Crossing. Bear in mind, I've only had it a few weeks Mm -hmm. and I do need to work. And then I recently, for my birthday last week, got Stardew Valley by my sister because it's very similar to Harvest Moon in the sense that you have a farm, (laughs) crops, animals, friendship. And it's actually great. I love the graphics. They're very, like, two-dimensional. And it's just, like, so wholesome. Mm -hmm. So wholesome. So that's been my latest addiction. But... The new Pokemon's just come out. Yes, tell me about this. So it's Pokemon Scarlet and Violet. And it's the first time I've played a new Pokemon game in over 10 years. The last one I got was Pokemon Black and White back in 2010. That was a Christmas present. And I thought I'd treat myself since you have a Switch. It'd be rude not to get the 100%. new Pokemon. And it's actually mad. Like, it's the first, like, open world Pokemon. So you have a lot more to explore, like, spatially. But also I feel like 
the storylines have opened up and there's more choice on where you can, what you can do and what direction you can go in within the game. Yeah, because this is something that I've struggled with with some of the Pokemon games in the past. There was one that my nephew and I were playing. I can't remember which one it was. And I kind of just got frustrated about it because it didn't feel like there was a story arc yeah, there. Exactly. And I think when you're moving from console to console and game to game, sometimes you do want that element of a story and you want to feel like you're actually achieving something versus the Animal Crossing where you just potter around and collect leaves. So you're saying that there is a good storyline to this one? Yeah, like you can do the, the classic like bread and butter, collect Pokemon, mm-hmm. meet trainers, get gym badges, but then you can also find um, what are called the Titan Pokemon and that's more rare or you can defeat um, Team Star, which is the classic, like there's always this nemesis. And although that's in like the original games anyway, I feel like they're more develop storylines and you kind of really immerse yourself in them and choose this is what I want to do you know to start off with however I have to say as soon as I started playing all I wanted to do is that classic you know collect Pokemon beat trainers get gym badges I was like oh and I almost got frustrated ironically with all the storylines and all the kind of exploration that off that's offered in this game I felt like I was like why are these cutscenes keep on interrupting my gameplay Mm. I actually found myself just thinking I'm happy just to go back to the original. Yeah, that annoys me sometimes when there is, you know, long video montages yeah. or those cutaways where you have to just keep pressing a... <laughs> Smash in the A button. Get them to talk. Yeah. Like, just tell me what it is you want me to do and let me move on. Um, so did you find then you were almost not getting the full value of all that the game offers because there is just too much of that dialogue yeah, going on? they were almost just proper forcing the adventure story stuff. I was just like, okay, lads, I know, I know this, I know the shtick, like, let's just crack on. Um, but I have to say, though, like, it hasn't really taken away, although I felt like I was really just waiting for it, the game to really kick off. I felt like it was just like, okay, A to B. And I can understand that's beneficial for first-time players. Mm-hmm. Um, but for... For, old, for oldies like me, I was just ready to crack on. Yeah, that is Kira Tracy. Hopefully, Kira will be back in the near future with more gaming titles uh, to review. You can email techtalk at newstalk.com if you have any suggestions of titles you'd like to hear us review. Unfortunately, that is it for this week. If you missed any of the show, you can listen back in full on the Newstalk app powered by GoLoud. I'll be back with Shane and Kira Kelly on Monday's Newstalk Breakfast. But in the meantime, have a great weekend.